0: If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Mark chapter 1, the gospel of Mark chapter 1. This morning I want to do something I didn't plan on doing with Mark, but with my friend not coming and um, gave me a chance to think through some things a little differently. I want to give a theological overview of Mark, so to speak. I know that might sound extremely boring at the outset, but well, there's a lot of reading of Scripture I'd like to do. Um, and I want to do this through the prologue to Mark's Gospel. We'll certainly get into more of the specifics next week in this first part. but Almighty God reveals himself and his one plan for the world over time, mainly through the covenants in Scripture. This is how Paul speaks. In Ephesians 3.9, that in the preaching of the unsearchable riches of Christ, God is bringing to light for everyone the plan of the mystery that was hidden for ages in the God who created all things. So, God created the world with a plan that he kept hidden for ages, but revealed by sending his son Jesus into the world. That is why the four gospels that tell the story of Jesus, are so important. That is why when we read the Gospels now, we want to make sure that we realize in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in Israel, God was revealing his plan for all creation. When Jesus Christ finally appears on stage, God is going to make everything clear to such a degree that fully comprehending or interpreting God's plan and purpose before Jesus came would have been impossible. This is why we today are so reliant or should be on the New Testament authors in order to properly understand all Scripture. That mystery that God had kept hidden, this plan, was revealed to them. The plan was made known to them. So it was the apostles, it was men like Mark, who were able to correctly understand and interpret the Old Testament. And so to correctly understand our Bibles, we must listen to them. The message of the Gospels is the story of how Jesus restores Israel because Jesus is the Davidic King. He's the King from David that was promised. And if that's who he is, the one to whom God ultimately gave instruction for all mankind in 2 Samuel 7, then all the promises of God are yes in him. Life has reentered humanity through him. The four Gospels are the story of how Jesus was sent to fulfill everything God had promised and desires for humanity, which had been embedded in his covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel, and culminated in the promise of a king from David who would finally rule over all the nations. In other words, if Jesus is the king that restores Israel, then he is not only the fulfillment of all God's promises, he is the hope of all humanity. The gospel of Mark reveals Jesus is the culmination and the continuation of Israel's story, which means it's the beginning of the church's story. Let me pray. Father, I ask that for your name's sake, you would silence every voice that threatens the clarity of your word in us and outside us. Lord, for your name, for your glory, Help me to speak clearly, concisely, humbly, powerfully, that all might hear and believe the truth. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are filled with Old Testament quotations and allusions. So part of understanding how the plan comes to light for us is understanding how the New Testament authors treat the Old Testament. That's especially true when it comes to Jesus, Mark, remember this, wrote his gospel in light of the fact that God's plan had been revealed. His interpretation of the Old Testament then is written from the perspective of absolute clarity, which means his perspective must be our perspective as well. In the prologue to his gospel, Mark reveals that the restoration of Israel that was foretold by the prophets was accomplished in the first coming of Jesus. That might be confusing to us as we think about it because, um, we may already think there may be a way we already think the fulfillment of these things was supposed to look like, but I think that was part of the reason Israel struggled with Jesus also. But as we begin this gospel, we discover that Mark sees Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus during his life, during his ministry, the book of Isaiah in particular is extremely important to the New Testament writers, especially Mark, particularly Isaiah 40 and following. In Isaiah 40 through 66, the end of the book of Isaiah, there's a vision there of a new exodus. In that vision, God will return to Israel, defeat Israel's enemies, make a way, lead his redeemed people to freedom, where he will once again be king and dwell with them. And since... By the Holy Spirit who had come in full at Pentecost in the time and life of Mark, Mark is able to understand the purpose of those prophecies and the progressive, progressively unfolding nature of God's revelation to us. Because of that, he sees those things fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. Now, in the first century, leading up to the time that Jesus was born, these promises remain unfulfilled, even though many Jews had Return to the land. These promises in Isaiah had not yet been fulfilled. Herod was no son of David, right? So Israel was still in exile in the first century. These promises of Isaiah, promises of Ezekiel even, had not yet come to fulfillment. So Mark begins there. That's the context into which he is writing as he looks back, verse one of chapter one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, if you were a Greek person or a Roman person picking up Mark for the first time. When you read the word gospel in verse 1, you're going to hear it in imperial terms. evangelion, good news. That's the word they used when a new emperor came to power, when things were changing for them in a meaningful way. But if you read that word gospel as a Jew, Isaiah's new Exodus vision from 40 to 66 is what would come to mind. Jewish people knew their Hebrew Bibles very well. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1 and following. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Verse 9, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Good news is gospel. That's the word right there in Isaiah. And this text he's quoting, that he's looking back to, is speaking of its good news of the restoration of Israel. So if you heard the word gospel as a Jew, the good news specifically was that God was coming back. He was returning to Jerusalem to restore his people, Israel, and be enthroned as a king. You get texts like Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Gospel, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Again, good news. That's the very word Mark uses and that's the text he uses it from. So Mark very clearly wants to communicate that the gospel is that God is returning to restore Israel by suffering as a servant. Isaiah 53, and by being enthroned as a king. Isaiah 52, for Isaiah to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim good news, is to proclaim the return of Yahweh to redeem his people. So when Mark quotes those passages, he's interpreting to mean that here, in this coming of Jesus to which he's referring, God is returning to become king, which means victory for the people of that king. So the coming of Jesus is the passing away of one era, and the dawn of a new era. In these first three verses, Mark calls the gospel of Jesus what is written in Isaiah the prophet. In verse 2, he says he's quoting Isaiah. But he's actually quoting three different Old Testament passages here. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, which we see there in verse 3. But then he's also quoting, you realize this, from Malachi 3.1 in verse 2. And the larger context of Malachi 3.1 is Malachi 2.17-3.2, to which was written after the exile to Babylon, but all was not well. The people were back in the land, but they weren't yet pure. And so Malachi writes, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Then later in Malachi four five, he says who that messenger is. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the Lord is going to come and restore, but before he does, he's going to send his messenger Elijah to warn of judgment for those who do not respond in repentance, lest he come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So that day that he's speaking of will include restoration and salvation, but also judgment for those who reject the messenger. So Mark quotes Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, but there's still another layer of depth here. Because in Malachi 3.1, he is quoting Exodus 23.20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And the context of Exodus there is that after having redeemed his people, God sends a messenger ahead of them, an angel, as they enter the promised land. So Malachi picks up on that allusion from Exodus to show that another messenger will come. To make a way for a new exodus. Mark, in Mark 1, alludes to all of that. Malachi 3.1, Isaiah 40, verse 3, Exodus 23.20. But in verse 2, he says he's only quoting Isaiah. Now what does that mean? It means Mark very clearly wants us to see the story of Jesus as both the continuation and the climax of the whole story of the Old Testament. The whole thing. He wants the reader to see the Old Testament as one whole story intended to come together now and be fulfilled in Jesus. The promise of Israel's restoration under the Davidic king is the one great hope of the Old Testament. Mark only cites Isaiah because he wants to frame his whole gospel in light of that vision. That it is what's being fulfilled. For him, that vision in Isaiah encompasses, takes into account the whole Old Testament. And, beloved, that truth, those hopes, they shape the whole book of Mark. Mark cites Isaiah more than all the other books of the New Testament combined. Isaiah is the only prophet named in the book of Mark. So Mark would have to be read with an Isaiah framework to it. Malachi spoke of a coming messenger who, as with the first exodus, would lead Israel out of exile. He would prepare the way for Yahweh and come to purify and restore his people And the messenger Elijah, we learn here, is John the Baptist. Look in verse 4. So he's speaking of this voice crying in the wilderness. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So Isaiah had prophesied of the return of God to restore his people, usher in his kingdom through a new exodus. And according to Mark, this coming of Jesus is the return of God that Isaiah was speaking of. That's why he brings in those texts God is returning, rescuing, and restoring Israel through the person and work of his son. So what the prophets were looking to had come. We shouldn't be looking to the future, Mark is saying, but to the first century for the fulfillment of these promises. Mark isn't saying later. Mark is saying now. That's what happened then. Now, R.T. France said this, Jesus saw in his own coming The age of fulfillment of the messianic hopes of the Old Testament. The emphasis is on present, not future fulfillment. So the Gospels are the story of Jesus restoring and regathering this renewed and restored Israel around himself. Look in verse 4 again to verse 8. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem Now, what do you think of in your mind when you, when you hear the term Holy Spirit? Because the first thing we should probably think of is eschatology. The Holy Spirit is the gift at the end of time or the gift of the end of time. We need to hear the restoration of Israel when we hear of the Holy Spirit. One of the ways God would come and restore his people would be by pouring out his spirit on them. That hadn't happened before in total. The fundamental reason Israel went astray it's because they didn't have new hearts. They didn't have the gift of the Holy Spirit. But according to the Old Testament prophets, in the last days, that's the gift of the new covenant that comes at Pentecost. That's when God remedied that problem. When he returned to redeem Israel, he would pour out his spirit. That's evident in so many Old Testament passages that are talking about the restoration of Israel. To Isaiah 32, 14-15, 44, 1-3, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 27, the point is this. The the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is, first of all, a restoration of Israel issue. Right next to Ezekiel 36 is Ezekiel 37, of course, and the vision of the valley of dry bones. The dry bones are Israel, and the Lord breathes his spirit on them. And they come to life. So when we see in Mark one eight that he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, he might as well have said he will come and restore his people, Israel. That's how closely aligned those things are. So the prophet's future tense is Mark's present tense. Jesus is the one who's inaugurating the last days, and God is restoring Israel through the ministry of Jesus who baptizes with the Holy spirit pick it up in verse 9 in those days jesus came from nazareth of galilee and was baptized by john in the jordan so clearly this is who he's speaking of back in verse 8 and when he came up out of the water immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Do you know where this imagery of the sky being torn open as God comes in power comes from? Straight out of Isaiah's new Exodus vision. Listen to Isaiah 63 and 64 where you have this prayer that God would restore his people. Listen to these words. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you've never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence from of old. No one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. So we have Israel praying there. Lord, would you rend the heavens, tear them open, come down. And we have Mark saying, the heavens have been rent. They've been torn open. God has come down. God is returning through Jesus The long-awaited time of Israel's rescue has dawned, so the sky is torn, and then the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And yet again, that is in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah total. There are 590 references from 63 of those 66 chapters found in 23 of the 27 New Testament books. Isaiah is crucial if we're going to understand who Jesus is. Isaiah promised a servant who would be endowed with the spirit that would rescue Israel. The first of several servant songs then in Isaiah begin in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Israel was waiting on a servant who would be endowed by his spirit. And Mark is saying, here he is. The second servant song in Isaiah 49 reads, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword and the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away and he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So there in verse 3, Israel is the servant. Let's keep reading. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So here we have this servant, Israel, who's going to restore Israel. Then in verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That would be too light a thing. I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation might reach the ends of the earth. So if this restoration that's being talked about is something that's merely going to happen in ethnic Israel, it would be way too light a thing. It'd be way too small a thing as it relates to the plan of God. I will make you a light then, he says, for the nations, for the whole world. So Israel was waiting on a servant who would be endowed with the Spirit that would sum up and restore, but then apparently expand Israel so they would be a light to the nations. And so we read in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. Jesus says that of himself over in Luke. 4. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And you know what they thought of Jesus alluding or assuming or, or presuming that all that was being fulfilled then? They wanted to kill him for it. This servant is going to come and restore Israel. And Mark is saying very clearly, he has come to do that. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We have two more Old Testament quotations here. There are a dozen or more in the first 12 verses. Mark records the father saying, you are my beloved son. That phrase is from Psalm 2, a messianic psalm about the coming Davidic king. Psalm 2, 7 and 8, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The nations your heritage. And that's being said about the future king, Davidic king of Israel. The the, the king of Israel didn't rule over the nations, but here... We're looking towards a new and a greater son of David who will rule over Israel. Yes, but Israel 2.0, so to speak, which includes the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as this king's possession. Mark is telling us that the person they were waiting on in Psalm 2 is here. The future Davidic king will not only rule over Israel, but over all nations. See it again in Psalm 72, where verse 8 says he will have dominion not just over Israel, but from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. And verse 17, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. This universal reign of this future king from David was also seen in the covenant with David itself when God made the promise to David that he would have a son with a kingdom that would not end. David, upon hearing that, responds in 2 Samuel 7.19, he says, this was instruction not just for these people, not just for Israel, but for all mankind. Why did he say that? David is praying and thanking God for the promises to him, and he's praising God because he says, I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away here. But what you're saying to me about my descendant is not Just instruction for Israel, but for all people, for all mankind. Israel will eventually bless all nations through this son of David, Jesus, the king. Just as God promised to Abraham all the way back in the beginning. So Jesus is the Davidic king. He's the son to whom all the nations will bow. He's the royal servant. He embodies the return of Yahweh to come and restore and regather Israel around himself. Then we read in Mark Mark 1.11, You are my beloved son, that is, you're the Davidic king, who will have the nations as his heritage. With you I am well pleased. That is from Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. My soul delights Alludes to in whom I am well pleased. That's Jesus right here. So Mark keeps insisting that John the Baptist is the Elijah-like messenger who came to warn. Who prepares the way for God to return and rescue his people. And Jesus is the spirit-endowed servant who fulfills that promise here by coming this first time. Verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Forced him there. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. So now comes the temptation for this son of God. And we've seen this before. And it's never gone well. Right? It should sound familiar, temptation for God's son, In terms of Israel's history, not for 40 years here, but 40 days. Jesus, however, is faithful. The new Israel, faithful where the old was not, succeeded against the real enemy of the world in his temptation. Not Egypt or Assyria, not even Babylon or Rome, but Satan, the real enemy behind all the enemies. And then it says that he was with the wild animals. That's a very strange editorial comment. Of course, he's with the wild animals. He's in the wilderness. When we're with wild animals, unless it's you know a flock of feral puppies, it's it's not going to go well, right? I don't know how dangerous feral puppies are, but if if we're with wild animals, it generally isn't going to go well. But Jesus, what is he doing here? He's ushering in the kingdom. He's bringing about the new covenant here in his first coming. So Mark is recalling, I think, Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. That's how gentle it will be. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I heard a guy preaching on this text saying right now the only time a lamb dwells with a wolf is if the lamb is in its belly. But a day is coming, apparently, when peace will come between all things. And Mark is saying it's happening now. It's beginning now, that is, with Jesus alongside these wild animals. And he's just fine. He's not attacked. He's not assaulted by them. He's the first fruits of a new creation. Eden is whispering to us again. 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, in case there's any debate over what I'm saying. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does he mean by kingdom? I think everything we've seen in Isaiah 40 and following... Where God returns as king and restores his people. That time is fulfilled. The time the prophets pointed to has arrived. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom is where all God's saving promises are fulfilled. And we have Jesus saying, don't wait, it's here. It's here now. And what's the proper response to the fact that the kingdom is here? Repent. Repent. Change your mind about the way you view God. And the way you view what God is doing, drop your program and pick up his. What is that program? Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Well, guess what? This also has the Old Testament as its background. Jesus is not just using fishing as an analogy for winning souls, although it most certainly is that, it's just more than that. This refers to the end of Israel's exile and the gathering in of the exiles. His background here, Mark's background here is Jeremiah who had prophesied there would come a day when God would restore Israel by bringing them back from all over the place. Jeremiah 16, 16. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rock. So through the ministry of Jesus, the followers of Jesus are restoring Israel in that sense. Jesus he is the Davidic king. He is the servant from Isaiah who has come to sum up and restore Israel. And then after this time of purification, he sends his people out as an extension of that ministry to gather in all Israel from everywhere. So the expansion of the church is the fulfillment of Israel's destiny, which includes all nations, as it always had if we were listening to the beginning The result of that. We are the result of that in Moundsville this morning. Our faith is proof of that. The Old Testament prophets future tense have become present reality in the coming of Jesus. That's why this call will become our call by extension at the end of the Gospels in the Great Commission. It's fascinating. It's just it's fascinating. In Isaiah 49, there's this servant who will bring Jacob back and restore Israel. It's fulfilled in Jesus, but by extension, in a sense, it's fulfilled in us, which is why you have even in Acts, the book of Acts, Paul and others quoting Isaiah 49 about themselves, not because they were the servant, but because they were an extension of the servant's ministry. So what was the ministry of the early church? Well, what is ours? To restore and regather Israel, to be fishers and hunters, bringing in these elect exiles, as Peter calls them. As God is doing what? Building the one new man in place of the two to be his dwelling place by the Spirit. How do we know who Israel is? Well, according to Galatians and Ephesians 3.6, Israel is anyone who has faith in Israel's Messiah. They are the sons of Abraham. They are the children of promise. So we don't... By the way, we don't say then that the church has just replaced Israel. No, 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 no. You don't move straight from Israel to the church. That Israel culminates in Jesus. All the promises of God to them are fulfilled in Him then. He's the only obedient Israelite that kept the covenant. And because we, by grace through faith, are in Him, these blessings pass to us. But that's because of our identity in Christ. Nothing is being replaced. Remember that. The mystery of a plan that's been hidden for ages, but has always been at work, has now been revealed. That's what's happening. The fact that that has happened is why I would speak that way. Why Mark is speaking that way. Of course, it's shocking. No one could have understood that that was the plan until it was revealed. Right? No one saw that coming in the fullness with which it finally came. But we've moved from one era to another. We've moved to an era of clarity and substance of a final word from God. Not an era of shadows and types. Or even of progressively unfolding revelation. No, no, no. The plan and the mystery have been revealed in Jesus. So what we should see very clearly is that Mark wants us to see Jesus in a very particular way. And the way to do that is by knowing our Old Testament. Because that's all Mark is. Or all Mark 1 is. It's just Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. Showing that God was fulfilling the plan he had all along. Keeping it hidden And now beginning to reveal it, and by the time men like Mark and Paul would write their letters 30, 40 some years after the events described in Mark, then they're able, it's come with a clarity never even seen before. They're able to put the pieces together. They're the ones able to see the whole picture. To them came this revelation. To them we should listen when we want to understand our whole Bibles. The life and ministry of Jesus was the crucial moment in redemptive history. That's the apex. Right then, the coming of God to restore and regather his people was fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus who came to gather Israel around himself and then send out fishermen and then send out hunters to bring back the exiles, his chosen people from every nation, what Paul calls the Israel of God. That's what we do as the church. Mark, in being the story of Jesus, is the story of how we began. The stories of Mark are the stories of how Jesus is the continuation, the solution, the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And as that, he unites us to himself. Now, how will this king so mighty so glorious so powerful so true how will he accomplish this great mission well by being misunderstood and rejected and hated and then arrested under cover of nightfall like a common criminal betrayed by a friend Forsaken by the fishermen, enduring a miscarriage of justice, the likes of which the world has never seen, being beaten, mocked, spit on, whipped, stripped naked, make no mistake about that, laid down on pieces of wood, And having his hands and feet nailed into them. And being hung and crucified on a cross. That's how. That's how. What kind of servant will he be? That's the kind of king he's going to be. What kind of servant will he be? Well, the kind that receives nothing and gives everything. When God moved to finally reveal the mystery of His plan, it was not with a grand show of strength for all the world to see at the time it was happening. Isn't that, He he didn't come in the era of the internet to do this. He didn't come when there were TV cameras and newspapers and reporters and Twitter and Facebook and all these things that would become part of our reality. He didn't come when everybody could see it at the same time. There are many reasons for that. One of them is he didn't come in a parade, right? It's it's crazy that Jesus comes bumbling into town as the king on the back of a little donkey. Do you know how how goofy that would look? I'm not trying to be blasphemous. You understand? An adult male on a little donkey, his knees out to the side, bouncing down as he comes into the city. It wasn't a grand show of strength. And it wasn't a presentation of what must be done by us to return to our Creator. That's not how the king takes his throne. So it wasn't a show. It wasn't a mere formality, right? You know, like when, when you have the team that won, you know, the Super Bowl or something go visit the White House, like assuming that the, I mean, okay, hopefully the president is a fan, right? It wasn't that. It wasn't like, well, we got to do this. It's a, it's a formality. It's a matter of state. because his mission was the full pardon of sinners and God would not make that cheaply the story of mark is the story of the servant and the king who was murdered crucified for his people it, it as we get into mark and we get to the passion narrative there which covers so much of his gospel We'll flesh that out a little bit more, and just how how Mark Mark sometimes, as a book, is criticized for, believe it or not, like in critical scholarship, for not really talking enough about the atonement, when the whole book, the shadow of on it is the atonement, is Jesus dying, this great King with all this authority which the book just keeps talking about, authority, authority, authority over demons, over Satan, over sin. He can forgive sins. He can heal people. He can cast out demons. He has authority over the dead. How is he going to become the king if you have all that? Well, easy. You stomp on the head of everybody and say, I'm the boss. No, you, you give yourself up and let yourself get killed. Because Christ crucified is the heart of the Christian message. What, what Mark's about is the heart of what Christianity is. I mean, I know this is a broad brush, but, but the essence of other religions is essentially advice. Right? Rules. The essence of Christianity is essentially news. It's essentially a proclamation of what someone else has done that must be believed upon and embraced in order to have salvation. Not earned, not worked for. And so everything that God is, he reveals in this person who was crucified. The news is that Jesus died for us. And that blood is ever effective for us. Salvation has come in the person of the Son, God took on flesh and blood to die on a cross. That was the whole point. And then to rise from the dead. But in Mark, all the emphasis is on the death. Mark is the story of how God came close to humans to save them. By dying for them.